If you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're just about the end of this chapter. We're looking at verse 58 today. We're just going to look at one verse and consider some broad application about it. <clears throat> yeah, so it's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. I can't remember, honestly, if, this, if it was a year ago or more. I, I, I think it was, it was at least a year ago. I went on a walk with Jonathan, Jonathan Coleman, um, around the Golden Mile. And we were talking about the expectation of Paul in his letters, particularly. Um, I'm sure we were talking about more than that, and, and I'm going to get some things not perfect here. But my recollection is we were talking about the commandments of Paul in his letters, and his appeal that we would live lives of love and holiness and purity. And, and, and not just that, but the strength, the virility, the constancy and consistency with which he seemed to expect us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we were wondering why so often in our own experience of the Christian life and victory in the Christian life, we felt so much more uneven than the way that we read Paul's expectation and, and even the way he proffered his own experience in the scriptures. And on that walk, what I remember wondering aloud with Jay was essentially this. Like, what if too often our problem with the Lord is, is less often our performance and more with our faith? And I, I know that sound, might sound like a simple equation, but it's kind of a well-known idea that in Paul's letters— He'll spend often the front end talking about truth and the back end talking about the implications of that truth. And so my question that day that me and Jay were both wondering was, what if our deepest struggles often that we simply don't see and believe the truths that Paul preaches, or any of the New Testament writers, but in particular Paul, we simply don't see them and, and believe them the way that we we should before he commands the life that we're supposed to live as a result of those truths. And, and I think this verse today, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, it attests to the principle that is that, that truth seen and heard and believed and sincerely believed is what sets us free through the power of the Holy Spirit to live as we should. This verse is very short and it's a very simple appeal but it comes at the end of this glacier mammoth size, Jupiter size dose of truth that we've been looking through all in chapter 15. It simply says this, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, in the, in the Greek meaning, it's a generic, Therefore, my, brother, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray again together. Lord, we need you. We, we ask, I ask, Lord, uh, that you would please minister over your word today. Lord, we can sow and we can hear, but only you give growth. Would you also have mercy on me in my preaching to protect your people, Lord, from where I may be not seeing as I should and where I am by your grace seeing where I should? Would you amplify? Would you deepen? And make our hearts take hold of what you want to speak through your words spoken today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This verse comes after Paul has just hit the crashing symbol at the climax of our victory in Christ. He spent the whole last chapter proclaiming the full blossom of the gospel and, and our inheritance in it, in the resurrection, the ultimate victory over sin and the law 
and death that he says Christ gives to you and I. And now he says, and he says, I want you to do something. I want you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We're going to seek to draw out these commands some today and I, and I think next week. But, but I want you to notice something that I think is very important to see whenever you're dealing with a passage in the New Testament that has commands. The commands, or the, what's called the imperatives, are always to be logical, reasonable, and right responses to truth. And I want to stress this today because I think so many of us are prone to zero in on the commands and the laws in Scripture that, that we can even unconsciously miss this. Like, if you're like me, you, you come through a whole chapter of truth You come through a whole chapter of truth on the gospel and the resurrection, and then you come to this passage. Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord. And, and there's a part of you that says, there's a part of me that says, right, enough of all this doctrine and grace and abstract stuff that's in the future, in the past, that I can barely get my hands around. What do I need to do? Let's get to it. I mean, that's the, that's the stuff that I got to deal with that's going to be on me. So let's get to it. We can be prone to see the law, the commandment, when it comes and either try to move too quickly to it or, or be repelled by it. In, in either case, forgetting the truth the command is supposed to spring from. I don't want us to do this. I, I don't want us to be a church. That seeks to live out the call of God without the fuel of God's truth. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes about what he calls our law-ish hearts. Our hearts are so prone, he says, even deeper than we realize, to run past the news of God's love for us in Christ, the news of God's salvation for us in Christ, to, or to give it just kind of a superficial nod and run to the security we think will come in our law abiding. Or hide, perhaps, to escape the pressure that the commandment brings. Or deal with it all, in all sorts of mechanisms in a law-ish way. He writes this, I think, really insightful little treatment on this idea of law-ish hearts. He says, there's an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness that is not something we say or even think so much as something we exhale. You can smell it on people, though some of us are good at hiding it. And if you trace this fountain of scurrying haste in all its varying manifestations down to the root, you don't find childhood difficulties or a Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find gospel deficit. You find lack of felt awareness of Christ's heart. All the worry and dysfunction and resentment are the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom, that existential calm that for brief Gospel sane moments settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of, of worksness. Do, do you get what he's saying?
I feel this a lot, and I don't want to preach to myself only this morning. This morning, I walked in to band practice, and I was anxious about whether it was right to have the weather, you know, to, to be inside or outside. I was anxious that I was late again. I was discouraged about myself. I was tempted to worry about this message. And essentially, though I know God is real and I believe him, I, I, I was living in a system without God. And what I did basically was walk in here grumpy. And I walked in with about 4,000 pounds of pressure on my back and my attitude towards Josh was grumpy. My attitude towards Michelle was grumpy. I mean, maybe they couldn't tell, but I could tell. Um, and, and I was going through a leveraging, a trying to find security in my sense of closed offness or trying to find security in my sense of their acceptance. I was going every place but Christ and who he is for me. The Bible never works like that. The, the Bible calls us to live out of who God is and who God is for us. What I want you to see in this simple passage today is that we have an example of a classic New Testament way of speaking to us, which is this. Since Jesus has done this for us, since Jesus is this for us, since Jesus will be this for us, since all of that, because of all of that, in light of all of that, now respond this way. And what we do too often is we jump over that because of who Jesus is for us. Since Jesus will be this for us, we jump over that and we run to the commandment, the ministry, the work, the effort. Or we manufacture deflections and hidings like grumpiness and looking for my approval from others. And but if we slow down, even here, we can see the truth of Jesus in this little verse of appeal, of commandment, of law, is bookending, sandwiching what Paul is calling from us. Like, look at this. It, this passage is like a little sandwich, and inside it is this application, this appeal, do this. But on the outside are these two slices of truth. Just look at it, slow it down, look at it carefully. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see verse 58's first word, therefore? And many of you know this. Whenever you see a therefore, you're to ask, what is the right? What is the therefore? The therefore means, so in light of everything I've been telling you about Jesus and you because of Jesus, that's the piece of bread on the top. And then at the end comes this back end of truth again, knowing. So do all this stuff knowing. Do it knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I think we can go through that and think, oh, I got to do these things. But Paul would say, no, 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 no. You're not doing it if you're not doing it knowing. You're not living the way God wants you to live if you're not doing it therefore in light of all this. So what you do needs to be done because of this. And what you do needs to be done knowing this. My main point is, let's not run to our part. Let's not hide from our part without recognizing God's part. That, it, that we can't divorce whatever God calls us to from who God is and who God is for us. This is essential to all Christian progress. Our faith, if it's to have any meaning at all, it's, it's meant to anchor our living. We, we are to live because of what is true. We respond because of what is true. That's the Christian life. I dare to venture that all of our failure in our walk with Christ is that we try to either walk, we try to either live for God 
or run from God without a clear and a convinced sense of who God is for us in Christ. I think that all of our failure in our Christian walk is due to the fact that we try to live either for God or we try to run from God without a clear, convinced sense of who God is and who God is for us in Christ. The truths of his promises, his grace, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his patience, and even at times, hopefully seldomly, but when we need them, the truths of his fatherly warnings, given all from a heart of grace, they too quickly become just skin deep to our hearts, and and we fall off slowly or quickly into either legalism or license, either into either escaping him or trying to earn it from him. Isn't it true that for many of us, our, our, our sad too often predicament is that the truth of his grace and, and all of its revealed facets, it isn't the impetus, the fuel that it's supposed to be because we've got such a lackluster hold on it. We lack clarity. We lack conviction. We lack hope. We lack the Spirit's wind in our sails because so often the truth that the Spirit of truth works in us is too muted. It's too muffled. And so when Paul says something like, therefore, we we need to pay attention. We have to ask, what's he pointing at? And here, he's pointing at everything he's been saying in this entire chapter. Starting in verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you by which you are being saved. Christ died for our sins. There is a judgment to come. It is real and it is either coming to you or you are going to it. God cares deeply about righteousness and goodness and love. And therefore, he cares deeply about our sins and he will deal with sin and he will hold us accountable for our sin. But into this comes crashing this gospel. But Christ died for your sins. And this truth, their believing, the Corinthians' belief in this truth saved them. And that's what the gospel does. It becomes real to us. It saves us when we believe it. When we simply receive the free gift of what Jesus is for us. That he is our sin bearer. And Paul says more than dying for your sins. In verse 21 he explains, Jesus was raised from the dead as a guarantee and a foreshadow of your own resurrection. In verse 21, he says, For since by man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus invades our union with Adam. We had a whole message on this. What does it mean to be in Adam? Jesus invades our union with Adam, our bond with Adam, that we came from him, our life, our life springs out of his life. And Jesus comes in and he breaks that bond with Adam, that God-rejecting, God-disowning, broken, sinful life that we inherited from our first father. He breaks into that and he unites us with himself. He ends our bond with Adam. And he creates a new bond with him. This is, I can't go into all the details of this, but it means that just as we had formerly inherited Adam's sinful life leading to death, now we inherit Jesus' righteous life leading to resurrection. And then starting in verse 35, as we talked about the last two weeks, Paul proclaims that the Lord, who turns seeds into mammoth trees, who dresses the sun up in a gown of blinding light, that surely that God knows how to bring about our resurrection perfectly suited for an eternity in his presence with an intimacy and a glory that we can barely imagine. 
And this he will do in a flash when he decides it's time at the return of his son. And then last week, as we saw, Paul sums up the totality of Jesus' victory this way. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law, which is holy and good. The commandments of God himself to love him and to love our neighbor. This law can never save us. Because of our fall, it arouses our sinful hearts against it. And then once we sin, the law then comes and justly condemns us and brings the verdict of the law that sinners deserve eternal death. But Christ has died for our sins and he has satisfied the law's demand for our death. Now we don't have to fear sin's penalty and we don't have to fear the law's verdict. The truth is, and this is, this is in the seed form of what Paul says when he says, the power of sin is the law. Our entire relationship with God is no longer defined by law. It's no longer, no longer fundamentally, fundamentally defined by law. It's no longer fundamentally defined by whether we love him and others as we should. That is no longer our fundamental hope. But he says, this is how our life now is defined. He gives the victory. He gives the victory. He gives, through his death and resurrection, our freedom from the law's condemnation. He gives, through the power of his Holy Spirit, freedom from sin's dominion, its power to rule you and hold you and imprison you now. This isn't laid out explicitly in, in chapter 15, but it's the implied truth of so many passages in this letter that Christ has indeed freed us. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this to this sinful, struggling church. He says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean they're personally going to be guiltless. It means that Christ's blood and his death for them will stand up through all of their failures and all of their fallings. And on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, his love, his sacrifice will be what defines them. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Chapter 6, You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christ is not only our sacrifice, but his spirit is the power to live free again. And he continues to deliver us. Verse, 1 Corinthians 10, this famous passage, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He gives the victory. His Holy Spirit gives us the power to walk away from that which is seeking to imprison us in it again. The Holy Spirit who lives inside us, whose we are. Christ gives the victory. In chapter 6, the whole reason why Paul says the Corinthians had first been freed from these sins that he is warning them to stay away from Sins like sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, greed, drunkenness, slander, false accusers, proud mocking, verbal abuse, fraudulent scheming. These are the sins he lists in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, that's not who you are anymore. He says, you were sanctified, you were washed, you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. What I'm trying to say is that implicit in all of these statements is that Christ has given them a victory through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk and live new. He hasn't just died for our sins. His Holy Spirit has given them power and the ability through his spirit to walk new. God has freed you, is what Paul is saying. He is freeing you, is what Paul is saying. And he will free you, ultimately, from all the penalty, all the power of sin and death through Jesus Christ. So when he says, therefore, that's what's behind all of therefore. And he says, be steadfast, immovable, immovable in this. Don't just hear it and move on. Be immovable in these things. Be steadfast in the incredible, hope-compelling, joy-feeding truth that the gospel proclaims to you. Be steady, be unshakable, be firm in these truths of Christ's salvation that I've opened up to you, Paul is saying. Don't move from your settled position on these things because that's the only way we will be able to rightly and with, with joy and with fruitfulness give ourselves to God's work if we're doing it because of these things. But my reflex is to just run to these things and, and, and forget why and forget who and just try to get it done so I don't get in trouble with you. That's my instinct. I don't want to get in trouble with people. <laughs> I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want to get thought ill of. I, I don't want my reputation smeared. I don't want my, and I love my kids. I don't want my kids to grow up to be terrible. And I don't want my wife to not love me. And I, I, I I don't want to get fired. <laughs> so often, the, the things that drive me are not the therefores or the knowing this. And so Paul says, this isn't just something I'm telling you. This is something you're called to be immovable in. You're called to be firm in, unshakable in. This is very similar to what he said at the very beginning of this chapter. He told them the gospel. He said, this is the gospel that saves you if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, it's just vanity. It's emptiness. Colossians 1.23, Paul says a similar thing. He says, continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from good behavior. No, that's not what he says. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Continue in the faith, stable, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Not the hope of your being good enough, the hope of people liking you, the hope that your Savior will be faithful to you to the end. That his sacrifice is enough for all that you've done. Stand in that. Be firm in that. People were coming to the Corinthians and saying, the resurrection of the dead is a lie. It's done. It's spiritual. It's not happening. People were coming to the Galatians and saying, Christ's sacrifice is not enough. You need to follow these rituals. People were coming to the Colossians and saying, we have more important things to tell you. Things about angels and visions and special rules that really make you super spiritual. This world comes to us in subtle and not so subtle ways and, 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 ways and says, Christ isn't enough. This is folklore. Or the religion's nice. It's a some nice historical things, but it's, it's not solvable. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no utility in the cross of Christ. The Holy Spirit's positive thinking. The solutions for you are strictly a matter of biochemistry or your upbringing. 
your need for per personal fulfillment, your sexual liberation. There, there's all kinds of waves that wash over us. And in all these things, the Lord is saying, don't move from the gospel. Be immovable. So, so my question for you this morning is, what do you need to help you be steadfast? To help you be immovable, right? Because I, I don't want to pretend like this is a binary thing and tomorrow you can just fix all this and I can just fix all this. It's a lifelong battle to be immovable, to be firm. But I also don't want us to hear that and be like, oh, okay, cool. Then I don't really have to, I don't have to worry about trying to be firm in this and hold on to this. So I want to ask, what, what do you need to be firmer, to be more steady, to be more confident in these truths of the gospel, of your Savior and what he's done for you and who he is for you? Are there doubts? Are there questions you have that won't stop badgering you? I battle, I've battled with doubts for years. I, by God's grace, I, I battle less than I did in, in my earlier life, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. But is that where you feel the, the hardest task is for you? Is just doubts? Is this true? I can wonder that too. Well, bring them out in the open. Bring them to God. Bring them to his word. Bring them to his people. I can tell you, by God's word and my own life with God, he will not be unfaithful to you. If you seek him, you will find him. He knows your frame. He knows that you don't see yet, that we walk by faith and not by sight. God created your ability to think critically. He's not afraid of that ability. But will you come to him? Will you truly seek out his answers? Will you cry out to him for help? Will you stay at it? I would love to help you with, with these things. If you need a friend or a advice or wisdom on doubts. But when Peter was drowning, even though he should have been walking on water, Jesus didn't leave him there. Even if the Lord knows we should have stronger faith, it is in his heart to let us drown in unbelief. When Thomas said, I will not believe unless I can put my fingers through his wrists. When he said that in a heart of sincerity, not a heart of hard-hearted rejection and cynicism. Jesus said, okay, Thomas, if this is what you need, then let's do this. If you turn to the Lord for sincerely for help, he will not leave you either. It's not his heart, not to Peter, not to Thomas, and it won't be his heart to you. It hasn't been his heart to me. But perhaps for a lot of us, our issue isn't with doubts as much as it is with the, sort of a self-imposed malnutrition, a self-imposed malnutrition. For, for some of us, our battle to be immovable or steadfast, steady, unshakable, firm in the truth has more to do with the lack of attention that we give the truth. Do we give the Lord the time he needs in our hearts each day to settle us, to make us firm, to set us in place again in the salvation we have in Christ? <laughs> I don't know if I shared this with you. I don't remember things more than three hours anymore. But one of the things that's so funny when I pray with my kids is, is they, they're doing it less now, not you, Marie, wherever you are, um, but with my boys particularly, is, is they'll just be like, again? We prayed yesterday for the same thing. And I have to tell them, this is how it works, guys. We get one day to live at a time. Every day we have to re-up. Every day we have to refuel. He says our daily bread, not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread. Do we give the Lord the time he needs in our day to settle us in him? To give us joy in him again? Do we lift up a sail of truth that the Holy Spirit can blow into? George Mueller was an extremely fruitful Christian evangelist and charity worker. Listen to George Mueller, just a few factoids. George Mueller was alive in the uh, 1800s in England. And through his ministry, he cared for some 10,024 orphans. He started 117 Christian schools that educated more than 120,000 children. 
He cared for so many poor that, that he was accused, and those of you who've seen Downtown Abbey will understand this, that he was accused by the establishment of destabilizing the English class system, giving too many poor people an education, was going to destabilize their culture because they had classes. I mean, class, not as in I biology class, but as in upper class, lower class. And everybody had its, their proper place to stay within. Mueller had an extraordinary life of risk spurned by faith. Risks taken because he believed God would be faithful. He, if you know about Mueller, you've read anything about him, you, you know that he'd see God do literal miracles to feed and care for poor children that he gave himself to. I can't think of a man, I'm sure in history there may have been other men after the apostolic age, I can't think of a man with more crucial and heavy responsibilities for, for, the, for the livelihood, the, the food and water and shelter of so many people who bore so much fruit. But, but it, behind all that ministry, behind all that caring, behind all that burden was this principle of life for Mueller that is as beautiful and freedom-giving for him, for, for you, as, as it is for him. And it was also extremely counterintuitive. And the principle was something like this. If you want to serve God faithfully, if you really want to serve him faithfully and endure in that faithful servant, you have to be happy in him. If you want to serve God enduringly and faithfully, you have to fight to be happy in him deeply. Early in his walk, Mueller came upon this truth. According to my judgment, Mueller said, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Now, I, I want to stop here. I feel a, a moment here. Listen, we all have different temperaments. Some of us have battles with depression that are real, that are biochemically related. Some of us have old, melancholy, Irish Catholic souls like myself. It, it, it's, it's much easier for some of us to be content and happy than others. So I want to say to you that I, I see this on a continuum, okay? So don't think in terms of absolutes, like you'll either be all happy or, or all blue. But, but try not to be hypercritical about that and try to get the best you can out of what he's saying here and just listen again. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life, to be happy in God. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. He means 35 years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brothers and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God. And then he uses this old Englishy phrase, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. What he means is not just doctrine you read on a page, but truth you feel in your heart. To have acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. I, I could list you a whole bunch of verses like the joy of the Lord is our strength, but what Mueller is saying is what the gospel writers testify again and again. It's what we've been talking about all morning long. It's, the, it's faith in the truths of who Jesus Christ is and who he has become for us in the gospel that lead to joy and hope and peace to position us to live for Jesus Christ, that fuel our life for him. And if we reverse the order, if we seek to do for God, and, and, and all the while we deprive our souls of the truths 
of the gospel, of salvation, of God's mercy and love and compassion and faithfulness, we will wilt like a young plant under the dry heat of the sun with no water. And some of you may be wilting today. I was wilting this morning. So my biggest question this morning is, are you tasting the joy? Are you fighting to? Are you seeking to taste the joy each day to reacquaint yourself with the kindness and the mercy of your Father? It matters to him. Therefore, do these things. Maybe for you, is it even a question that each day you need to learn his mercy anew? again and again. Maybe we're letting our phones, our news feeds, our social media addictions grab our hearts before we even give him time to. I I don't know if that's your experience, but the conspiracy of my heart's desires and dopamine in my brain make it so that it's a reflex for me when I wake up in the morning to want to find something on my phone or something to scroll through. And, and if that's you, I, I just encourage you this morning I, I, to appeal to God for help, for grace, that you might give the best friend that you have the time and the space in your life to become, in your actual life, your best friend. That's my appeal, that, that you might have cleansing grace to give the best friend that you have the time and the space in your life to actually become your best friend. See what I'm saying? God is, Christ is your best friend, but that you might give him the time and the space to actually enjoy that relationship with you. And if you need help and you wonder, how do I do this? Like, what can I read? I have more than enough suggestions on this. Books and methods. I have a whole, if you go to our webpage, there's there's one of the little green blocks that says 10 ideas to help you in your devotional life. It's a whole like eight-page thing I wrote about this very issue of giving God the space and the time to fill you with hope, to give you joy in him. But, but here's something I know as I preach these things to you. The instinct and the desire to be, the want to be happy in him, so much so that it moves you into making that space for him. This has to come from the Lord. I mean, I can preach these things to you, but I know it has to come from him. And may this day, Lord, may you even stir our hearts to want you more, leading us to seek you more. For, for it, it's, it's this joy, this sober but holy but nonetheless real joy in him. It's in that joy that we, we find the strength and the desire to live out the truths he's com- c- proclaimed. It's, it's the, out of this joy that Paul is saying, always abound in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, yes, don't hear what I'm not saying either. The Lord wants you to be about his business. He, he wants you always abounding in his work. How you eat, how you scroll, how you watch, how you speak, how you date, how you clean, how you shop, how you grieve, how you vacuum, and how you drive. Whatever you do, Colossians 3.17 says, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I don't think that Paul was asking or the Holy Spirit's asking us to m- microcheck, are we vacuuming in the name of the Lord the right way? You know, did I, should, would the Lord have had me like go into this corner as hard as I did with the vacuum or more soft? No, that's not what he means. He just means, are you enjoying him? Is, is he at the core of your heart right now? Is he at the center? This is what the Holy Spirit makes possible, that we can really worship God through our day and through what we're doing. This is what he died to give to you. It doesn't mean we don't sleep or rest or play games or sports, this always abounding. It means we do it all from a settled sense that we are his, that he is ours, and that nothing can break that. 
But how are we going to do this? If we consistently give him short shrift in time and space in our lives, how can we be immovable if we can only vaguely recall what it is we're not to move from? Why should it matter that our labor in the Lord is never without meaning if we aren't spending any meaningful time with him and in his truth? In Revelation 2, Jesus speaks these words to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Did you see that church, how great it was? These, these people had spiritual discernment. They knew how to fight off heresy. They knew how to reject wicked false professors. They were commended for their labor and their patience and their perseverance in the truth. There's no ethical or moral failures that we can see in this commendable church. But Jesus says there is something seriously wrong here. And it's endangering your survival as a church. He says, you've left your first love. One writer says, what was once a love relationship had cooled into mere religion. Their passion for him became cold orthodoxy. They still believed the right things. They still did the right things. But their zeal, their love for the person of Jesus was empty. He still loves them. He's still caring for them. He's still commending them. He's, but he's also rebuking them. He says, you, you forgot me at the core. And, and what's the answer for fanning into flame our love for the Lord? John says it this way. We love him because he first loved us. And I think this is what George Mueller found. This is what he was talking about. He said, I'm going I'm to take a bath every morning in the love of God. I'm going to love him because I'm going to immerse myself in the truth that he loves me. I think this is what Paul found. He said, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith, I live in the Son of God who is going to judge me one day. Well, he did believe that, but that's not where he went. He said, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There would be a, a judgment of sorts for Paul and for all of us in the quality of our Christian lives, but not a judgment unto eternal life or eternal death. Christ has settled that judgment on the cross. And Paul rooted his life in the truth of that. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May God give us grace to live the same. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to give you the space and the time 
And you know what it should look like for each of us. And you know that it can change from day to day, depending on what, what circumstance we're in. But Lord, would you forgive us for ways that we've neglected you? For ways that we've put our phones in front of you, our shows in front of you, even better things than that, for ways we've put our duties in front of you, our ministries in front of you, the expectations of others in front of you, for ways that we experience the fraying that comes from that, the frazzledness that comes from that, the anxieties, the stresses that comes when we don't seek to settle ourselves in your love for us. Lord, I pray especially for those this morning who are hearing this message and may be especially prone to condemnation, or discouragement and anger, who have experienced a sense that maybe you've abandoned them. Lord, would you gently and lovingly speak of your love to them. And Lord, for all of us, would you help us, Lord, to recognize that you're not calling us to run to the law. You're not calling us to find our refuge in our performance. Lord, that's the last thing I want to come out of this message. The Ephesians were performing really well. Lord, would you help us to find our satisfaction in your love for us, in your compassion for us, in your mercy for us. Would you just help us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.